Good job, worship team. Thank you very much. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts 18. Acts 18. And um, Lord willing, the next two Sundays, I'm going to do a couple of special messages about Christmas. And then the Sunday after Christmas, James is going to speak. And that's always special. So you've got three special messages coming. We're actually going to work on these. And uh, then we'll uh, do some special things at the first of the year. Uh, and then eventually get back to our study of the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Okay, so I'm looking at Acts 18 in the New American Standard Bible. And let me start here. Great, great baseball players make difficult catches look routine, while average baseball players make routine catches look difficult. And in a similar way, great disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ make what's truly difficult spiritually look routine. And what's truly difficult spiritually in Russell's life as a believer or Carol's life as a believer or Linda's life as a believer, isn't any one thing, it's everything. It's living a consistently loyal, stable Christian life despite all the sin, all the pain, all the death, all the illness, all the financial upsets, all the terror threats, and the ups and downs of life as we live for Him in a fallen we live for the resurrected one in a dying world. Okay, And so great disciples of Jesus Christ make what's difficult spiritually look routine. And we're going to see, consistent with all of that in our passage today, that routine faithfulness isn't routine, easy or automatic. Uh, just like there's no such thing as routine surgery if it's on you or a loved one. Routine faithfulness isn't routine, and it's not easy, and it's not automatic. So that's what we're going to look at today as we look at Paul's ministry in the city of Corinth. But uh, let's pray for teachability to God's Word, sincerely, and uh, and for the teacher. And let's pray for those who serve and protect us, uh, peace officers, firefighters, and our active military. And uh, David Demerson, we're going to put you to double duty today. You led worship, but lead us in, in prayer in that direction, okay? Does anybody anybody out there have a watch with a really big face that I could see because my phone that I use as a watch has just conked out? Does anybody have a watch? Yeah. First come, first serve. Well, yeah, this oh, darn it. Okay. And I, I don't need I don't. I don't want a broken one. Why would you give me a broken watch? Yeah, I told you that average average baseball players make the routine plays look difficult. That was the story of my life, trying to catch comebackers on pitcher's mound. Okay, I got to put it right side up. Okay, thank you, Dale. Um, to now that we've uh, we really don't need the top five list now because everybody's uh, laughed it out and they're all warmed up, but. Here's uh, just to warm your capacity for abstract thinking up a little bit. Uh, Christmas Q&A. What do you call a kid who doesn't believe in Santa? That would be a rebel without a clause. Uh, why is Christmas just like your job? 
You do all the work and a fat guy in a suit gets all the credit. That's only true at Halliburton. So. What do you call a cat on the beach at Christmas time? Sandy Claus. Sandy Claus. Henry, I don't mind explaining the jokes if you need me to. Sandy Claus, right? And then finally, why was Santa's little helper extremely miserable because he had low elf esteem? Rapidly moving to the context of our passage today, we're uh, in the second missionary journey of Paul, and after he enters Europe, he goes to major cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, last week in Athens, and now we're going to Corinth. And one commentator said going from Athens to Corinth is like going uh, from Boston with Harvard and all the Institutes for Higher Learning to Reno or, or Tijuana or someplace like that. So it's a whole different situation. It's just 50 miles down the road, but it's a vast cultural uh, difference in, in many ways. And we'll talk a little bit about that and show you some pictures from Corinth in a minute. Uh, passage looks like this. Uh, we're going to see in these 11 verses first, uh, Paul comes to Corinth from Athens, and he starts phase one of his ministry, which is always evangelism in the Jewish synagogue, because he's got scriptures to teach, and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the, to the Gentile. So we'll see phase one, which is evangelism. Then we're going to see phase two of Paul's ministry. He transitions from evangelism to church planning and teaching the word to believers. And then in verses 9 through 11, we're going to see uh, the Lord tells Paul to keep on doing the same old thing rather than giving it up or watering it down because he got a little discouraged. Sometimes when you're trying to do the right things, it can be discouraging because you wonder if you're really accomplishing very much. So we're going to see that uh, the ministry of encouragement is something all of us can and need to be involved in, on both the receiving and the giving end. Okay? Look at verses 1 through 4. Paul comes to Corinth from Athens, starts phase 1 of his ministry in the city. After these things, in Athens, where all the philosophers are, where a handful of folks did believe, uh, but the vast majority did not, he, Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And whether he walked or rode in a car or rode a horse, we don't know. But I'm picturing him walking. We'll find out. You can ask him in heaven. But it's 50 miles. And he found a Jew named Aquila. And, and that means eagle. That's kind of neat for your name to be eagle. A native of Pontus. Pontus was uh, in modern Turkey uh, near Bithynia, up in the northern part of modern Turkey. Um, Having recently come from Italy, that is Aquila had, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, the Roman emperor, in 50 A.D. had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Hey, get this, Dr. Deeg. According to Suetonius, a Greek historian who wrote in about 120, the reason that Claudius gave this command to get all the Jews out of Rome was because there were mobs in the Jewish sector at the instigation of Jews who were preaching Christus, which is Latin for Christos. The gospel beat Paul to Rome. The gospel was in Rome by 49 or 50 A.D., and apparently the majority of the Jewish community were hot and bothered about it, so it's just easier for the emperor to get 
rid of them temporarily from the city. And in result of that, Priscilla, his wife Aquila, who had been Jewish believers living in Rome, have now come to Corinth because they've been forced out of town. Uh, verse 3, And because he, Paul, was of the same trade as Priscilla and Aquila, he stayed with them. They just got a room together and paid for it together. Uh, and they were working. They were working six days a week to pay the bills. For by trade they were tent makers. Now I've heard my whole life that Paul was a tent maker. And you know, I took New Testament Greek in, uh, in seminary. And I look at commentaries that go to that. And I've got this uh, program on my computer that diagrams all the sentences in Greek. I don't have to do that anymore. But you look at all that. And I knew that Jesus was called a carpenter, but the term in Greek doesn't mean just a carpenter, but any worker in wood or stone. And that's pretty neat when you see all the mosaic floors in Galilee. You realize Jesus may have laid some of those mosaic floors or something like it. The word that's translated tent maker here is broader than tent maker. It really means a leather worker. So Paul and Aquila and Priscilla were probably making some tents and some saddles and some shoes and some cloaks and all kinds of stuff with with leather as the base material. So that's what they're doing six days a week. What's Paul doing every Saturday on the seventh day Sabbath? Verse 7, he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jewish folks and Gentiles who want to know about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his promises. Uh, he was in the synagogue there in Corinth every Sabbath and was trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. I think Homer and Pam will remember this, but when we had the privilege in 2010 of being on the Greek extension, so half the tour went home and the rest of us stayed and got on a bus and went to Olympia where the Olympics started and uh, Corinth and Delphi. I remember, You remember that, Jan. Uh, there was a museum at Corinth, a small museum in Corinth, and one of the things it had was this piece of wood that was uh, had an inscription in it that said synagogue. So, and that's dated first century. So we found the sign. We're not sure what, what building was the synagogue of even. It's not standing anymore. But we found the sign over the synagogue that Paul would have visited there. Let's say a few things about Corinth so we can appreciate where Paul is. This is just a map, of course, of Greece. And Corinth is in a very strategic location right on this very tiny little isthmus between the Aegean and the Ionian Sea. And, and sailors back then, uh, going either to Rome or from Rome to Ephesus or someplace else, would actually at times, depending on the size of the cargo and stuff, would rather than going around here, which was very dangerous, they would go through here, it's just like a mile and a half, something like that, and they would uh, have their cargoes and their boats dragged across that strip of land. Uh, a century or a decade or two later, I think it was Nero who attempted to build a canal there, and he, they were unsuccessful. But in the late 1800s, they built a canal, and I'll show you what that looks like. And for some reason, Mike, I can remember distinctly on that on that tour, you know, uh, we were headed toward Corinth, and we got to the isthmus there where they built the canal. It was kind of drizzling and dark, late morning, and uh, they kind of said, if you want to get out uh, and walk a block over there or something, you can look down that that site there. Now, that's a, a stock picture I got from uh, the Internet because in addition to my my phone going out, my uh, computer at home tanked about three weeks ago, and I've got all my Greek, uh, Ephesus, uh, Corinth pictures 
not backed out up on that computer, and I'm going to take it downtown and see if they can find my data. But anyway, I remember uh, only a hand. It's funny because the guy on the bus said, "Okay, we're you know just a little way from where you can get out and look down that canal if you want to." And there's also like a convenience store next to it. And if you want to go to a convenience store, and it looked like two thirds of the bus went to the convenience store, and me and Mike and two other people walked out because it's kind of rainy, a little chilly. Uh, but I remember looking down that uh, that canal that they've actually built nowadays. But Corinth was a very strategic city because of its location. It was the largest city in Greece at the time. It was 20 times larger than Athens. That blew my mind. Um, it uh, featured a temple to the goddess of love, and don't think about Valentine's and little, uh, you know, little guys cheating angels and sweet romantic love. This is erotic, uh, in most cases, crazy, perverted, over-the-top kind of bizarro land kind of eroticism. A uh, temple dedicated to Aphrodite with about a thousand female priestesses, and we would call them something other than priestesses today. I'll let you figure that one out. Everybody's going to be researching Corinth. It's in his churches over, aren't you? Uh, so it was a very spiritually needy place. Uh, so they needed the light of the gospel. And I always feel like the darker the sin, the, the brighter the light's going to shine. So as I look at the cultural disintegration of our culture, I know that if we'll keep shining the light, some people are going to hear and believe. God's going to find his people, right? Uh, regardless of the craziness around us, even though it's very sad to see it go down the tubes. Uh, but it's a very needy place, but it's also an intimidating place to preach the gospel because these people were pseudo-sophisticates and they were had no rules and they were smarter than all the people that would try to insist there's some kind of moral accountability before God. Uh, it's been found by archaeologists, and although there's a lot more archaeology they could do but can't because the modern city of Corinth is over most of the archaeology, here's some of the things you'll see if you go to Corinth. Those are ruins of not Aphrodite's temple, but uh, a temple to Apollos. That's a different angle, but that's a good angle because Carol up here. Hey, we always start rather than Christmas carols. Could we call them Christmas wonders? Have James, have James write that down. Write that down. Uh, this is the city of Corinth. Not very far away, there was this. Small mountain, about 1,800 foot high, called the Acrocorinthus. It was on top of that that the Temple of Aphrodite uh, was located. And obviously, uh, just the strategic nature of the trade and travel brought a lot of people in and out just for weekends and just for a couple times, uh, a couple times a year for a couple of days, so uh, away from their boss and their their spouses and stuff like that. So that kind of fueled some of that activity. That's just a nice brighter picture of that. I didn't take that. I got that off the internet. I uh, took that one. Took that one. And this one. Hey, Sue. Remember being in Corinth? That's you. That's Maxine. Uh, that is uh, somebody else. Uh, there's Steve Howard, my friend. There's, uh, uh, shoot. Who's the guy that worked for Slumberjay? Uh, mustache, good singer, Bill Brennan. That's Bill Brennan. Uh, now let me ask you a question. Where am I? Where am I in that picture? I'm taking it, yeah. So, well, I'm never in the pictures, right? But you can see, uh, that was one of the major roadsides that they've, uh, uncovered, still in semi-intact, okay? So after his arrival in Corinth, Paul bumps into a Jewish couple, 
uh, from Rome, Aquila and Priscilla. They become good friends. They work together. They live together. And Paul begins the first phase of his ministry, which is going to the synagogue, sharing Christ with uh, the folks that are there. Notice the exact wording is very interesting. It says in verse 4, he was reasoning. He wasn't yelling and screaming and uh, using all the religious cliches and let's have a pep rally and get excited. He was reasoning. They're actually using their, main, their minds or thinking about Scripture and Jesus and connecting the dots, reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath. That sounds a whole lot. Go back to chapter 17, verses 1 through 3, like the way Luke describes Paul's ministry in the synagogue in Thessalonica, doesn't it? Look at chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Now we're moving from Philippi to Thessalonica and they move through Amphibolus and Apollonia and then they come to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue there. According to Paul's custom, he went to them first for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now look at this, Ben. Verse 3 tells you what Luke means by reasoning from the Scriptures about Jesus in Jewish synagogues. In other words, verse 3 explaining Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and Zechariah 12 and stuff like that, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and rise again from the dead saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. The Jesus of history is the Christ of faith. They're both the same people. There's no difference. So phase one. Let's go to the synagogue, let's open up the scriptures, let's preach Jesus. And Paul's got a lot to preach, because when you analyze the Old Testament data, there's a lot of content about who the Messiah would be, where he would come from, when he'd come, what he would do, and why he'd do it. So I would have loved to got the videos of that, uh, those teaching sessions, right? Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, some principles I want you to see. Uh, there's no money growing on trees here, so Paul can go into the synagogue Paul's having to work like any average person six days a week. Now, here's the thing. Uh, you know, our disappointments a lot of times turn out to be God's appointments. And I got a feeling that Aquila and Priscilla weren't cr- crazy about packing up all their stuff and having to leave town one step ahead of the Roman Empire. But they end up, you know, here in Corinth, and they end up by God's providence bumping into Paul, which has got to be an amazing, you know, shot in the arm. And we're going to see them referred to a few more times in the book of Acts in, in uh, some real strategic ways. Uh, they all shared the same trade. They worked together. And here's the thing. When Paul's doing evangelistic work, doing pioneer evangelistic work, Ron, he doesn't ask anybody to pay him anything. He doesn't want to act like, let me tell you about the gospel. Now give me your money. Because he didn't want it to look like he's peddling the gospel. And he always resented it. And he refers to that in Second Corinthians. I, I didn't come to resent uh, Peddle the gospel to you. I didn't charge you anything for anything when I was telling you the gospel. Now, after you believed and I started giving my life to you and teaching you the scripture, yeah, then it, is it unreasonable for me to sow spiritual things for you and expect physical things back from you? So that's the way he operates. And just notice that. So he's working hard. Uh, and you know, according to the Talmud, uh, kind of the Jewish commentary in the oral law, Every Jewish father should teach his son three things. Number one, he should teach him the Torah, the Scripture. Number two, he should teach him a trade, how to make a living. 
And, then, and you apprentice your son and yourself, in this case, as a leather worker. And number three, you know what the third thing you're supposed to do, Blanche? Teach them the scripture, teach them the Torah, teach them a trade, teach them how to swim. That's what the, that's what the, the, the Talmud says, which is, you know, how do you argue with that? We farm that out nowadays. We take them to the YMCA and somebody else teaches them how to swim, but that's just that. So Paul knew how to work and he didn't expect God to send him a check in the mail or have money grow on trees so he could pull it down and finance his ministry. He just worked for a living. See, God doesn't work just through miracles. He works through the so-called mundane. If you really understand some sovereignty of God, providence of God, you realize everything. Uh, today, uh, and maybe my phone got mad at me because uh, uh, I got up, uh, I was especially excited today for some reason. Can you tell? Dressed up, special and stuff, and... Uh, it's hard to get my hair just right, you know, that so I spend a lot of time just for you. I know Angie likes it when it looks good. Anyway, so I'm excited and I'm leaving earlier than usual and I get in the car and I realize I don't have my phone. As much as I appreciate my phone, you know, I spend a lot of my life looking for my phone. And because I'm a lot of times in church or teaching at college, I always have my phone on mute. So even if Debbie calls it, I can't find it because it's not making any noise. So anyway, uh, yeah, so, um, I'm already, I'm in my car, kind of wipe the car windshield off, and I'm ready to go. I'm going to be here at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I usually try to get, James and I usually get here an hour early, but 90 minutes is kind of early, even for me, uh, on Sundays. Uh, so anyway, I'm good to go, and I'm just about to take off, and I realize I don't know where my phone is. So I look all over my car, because I'm pretty sure I brought it out, it's not there. Eventually find my phone. It takes about 10 minutes, and I was really kind of mad, and I, I said goodbye to Debbie, and when I came back in, she said, I thought you were leaving, you know, with a happy, cheerful voice, you know. So I was, but I came by my phone, you know. So, you ever do that? You ever do that? Uh, finally found the phone, get in there, kind of frustrated, and I thought, you know what? I've preached on this before. You know, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the promise of God. You know, I think some of the time, when you get to heaven, there's going to be a debriefing video, Ben. There's going to be a debriefing video and you're going to think, man, I went through so many tough times. Yeah, you did, but look what could have happened. And I got a feeling, I'm not saying this definitely happened this time, but I got a feeling you're going to get to heaven and find out. You know that time you couldn't find your phone and you left seven minutes later than you wanted to? Well, guess what? Let me show you what would have happened if you had your phone. You drive past Burger King, wait for the light to change. You're, you know, you're going, uh, what, east on uh, uh, Elk? Yeah, thank you. And... Uh, you go through that intersection, and an 18-wheeler just destroys you, and you die in a painful way. Now, that's, that's what would have happened if you had your phone. But I said, no, it's not your time, Brad. You're going to have another couple days before you get promoted. So uh, I, I worked it out, so you left your phone. When you got your phone, boom, you went through that intersection. The guy was long gone. There was no collision. Nobody got hurt. Uh, God doesn't get credit for those miracles about where he avoids disaster for you. You know, we just kind of get mad at the, the one time it doesn't happen and we get mad at him and stuff. But God works not just through miracles, but also through mundane events. Now, I won't, I won't, uh, go into a lot of detail on this, but I, I know Homer has asked me about this. The first full day we were in China when we did the China mission trip, uh, I was so giddy and so happy and we went to the bank to get Chinese money so we could, you know, operate for 10 days, whatever it was, two weeks. And uh walk across the street, and a car ran over my foot. I'm not making this up. I'm not one of those preachers that say I can make midgets grow and stuff like that, like Bob Tilton. I'm telling you, I was with my friends. 
Thought the car had stopped. Walked over here. A phone. A, a phone. I'm, I dropped my phone on my foot. Really what happened. No. A car runs over my foot. Now, it was a small car, but it had four Chinese people in it. And they looked back and kept going. You know? And I'm just thinking, oh, my, just in a nanosecond, I'm thinking, ow, I'm waiting for the pain to start. Number two, at worst, I'm going to have a really badly damaged foot. And I'm going to have to be in China for months having them in a hospital. Everybody else does their thing. And I'm going to distract a lot of people's attention from what we need to be doing. And then it, and it's like a nanosecond. And nothing hurts. And I kind of look down. And I saw the tread on the top of my shoe. But this is a car, not a bike, okay? I know there are, this is a car, not a bike. I know the difference. And, um, yeah. And I'm thinking, you know what? That's bizarro. But I'm just expecting to see blood. There's nothing there. And I'm embarrassed. Anybody else was kind of like, come on, let's go. They didn't realize it hit my foot. Uh, and I went, wow, this is amazing. This is awesome. So I do, I do believe God can do miracles like that. For some reason, he wanted me able to walk normally the entire China trip. But today, I may have been saved from something worse because I couldn't find my phone. That's what I'm saying. And Paul realized, wow, you know, I haven't seen any miracles lately, so I guess God's not with me anymore. Yeah, uh, I guess I need to make a tent or a saddle or do something to make enough money to operate as an evangelist so nobody will think I'm in, in it for the wrong reason. So wisdom plus works is standard operating procedure for Christian living and ministry. So don't despise the little things God's doing around you. Look at verses 5 through 8. We go from phase 1 to phase 2. Church planning, teaching the word to believers kind of thing. Verse 5. But when Silas and Timothy, remember he left them up in Macedonia when he came down to Athens and now he's in Corinth. When they came from the northern region of uh, Greece, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Getting into even more detail. But after a period of time, it became obvious that most of them categorically are not going to respond. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them very dramatically, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. I did what I needed to do. You're responsible. You heard it. You don't want it. We're going to find people of peace that want to respond to this thing. So he left and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus. A worshiper of God. He's a Roman. He's a Gentile, but he's been associated with the synagogue. He wants to know about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose house was next to the synagogue. So Paul's leaving the synagogue and going to set up shop and ministry next door to the synagogue. I bet that made the synagogue really happy, didn't it? And watch this. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his family. And many, a good many of the Corinthians in the city uh, when they heard the gospel, were believing and being baptized. Wow. Uh, I think what happens here is it's not just verse 5 that his friends come down, but his friends come down with something to help. When you read the book of uh, Philippians, when you read Second Corinthians, Paul talks about the fact that the Corinthian church especially sent many financial gifts to help him on his way. So reading a, a, a bit between the lines, I think... Silas and Timothy are coming down in part to bring this financial gift. So Paul doesn't have to work six days a week. He can focus strictly on teaching the word. Uh, but you hit a wall, you know, and you get to a point where you try to you try to share the faith with some people. And eventually they just throw it back in your face. And if nothing else, actually blaspheme more. The more they know, the, the more they can be creative in the way they blaspheme or reject. 
And you're just hardening them at that point. You're just throwing your pearls before swine, as the Lord would say. So there's a limit, you know. Now, uh, if some of these folks who later are convicted and God is uh, drawing them to himself, they're going to hear the gospel somewhere else or they'll remember what Paul said. But he's just saying, you know, enough is enough. You know, we don't have to cram the gospel down people's throats, Russell. You just need to live it and share it with people who are open to it. You know, and ask God to lead you to some people who are open to it, and you will. He'll do that. Uh, but from now on, we're going to the Gentiles. They go next door. Just so happens that one of the Gentiles who lived next door was also a synagogue attender, uh, Titius Justus, and also a big shot in the synagogue. And several others had come to faith. So we're actually getting a church started now. And so we kind of have, at this point, I say bad news about the good news in Corinth and good news about the good news in Corinth. The bad news is uh, a large percentage of the Jews in the synagogue just categorically rejected it. We're not going to believe it. We don't want it. And all we're going to do is blast, make fun of you and blaspheme what you're saying about Jesus. We don't, we're not interested. We don't care. Um, and so Paul very dramatically in a kind of a, uh, ancient Near Eastern way just does a, a visual uh, presentation of just how serious their rejection is by shaking off the dust and that kind of thing. The good news about the good news is that, uh, Titius Justice, whose full name is Gaius, Titius Justice becomes a believer, one of the elders, the leading elder in the synagogue becomes a believer. And a good many of uh, the just average folks also become a believer. Now, here's the cool thing. You see, uh, Tommy, Gaius, Titius, Justice, see his name there, and Crispus. Look here, in Romans 16, in, in Romans is written about five years after the events we're reading about in Acts. It was written from Corinth to the city of Rome by Paul. And when he's signing off at the end of that book, he says, Paul says, Gaius, Gaius, Titius, Justice, host to me and to the whole church in Corinth, greets you. And then he says, Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. Now, Gaius is the guy that Luke calls Titius here in Acts 18. Erastus, the city treasurer, interesting. If you go to Corinth, there's a plaque in front of a, a highway that was kind of near the stadium, and they told us that they were there. For those of you who are interested in a little bit of extra stuff, it's a little bit of a walk, but you can, watch, you can see the uh, uh, the Erastus uh, inscription if you want to. And, and out of the whole bus, nobody wanted to do that but me, but it was okay because you go there, and it's very famous you know, in, in archaeology circles. And we go there, and I actually saw that thing. But here's another thing. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So it's interesting to see how Acts and some of the epistles fit together, especially when you've got specific personal proper names there. So these are real people, Riley. These are real events, real, real places we're talking about. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, thinking about uh, Gaius and Crispus, look at this. Let me just start with the really interesting part as far as uh, the whole issue. Do you have to be baptized to be saved? Well, there's a lot of things you should say. No, we're not saved by works or rituals. We're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But look at 1 Corinthians 1.17. Paul says, after he summarizes what he wants to say about people using who baptized them as the basis for a pecking order in the church, which is ridiculous. But he says, hey, bottom line, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Baptism is a wonderful sign of your faith. It's not your faith. It's not the gospel. It's on top of the gospel. Okay? You make vows. You keep your vows. You wear a ring. You can take the ring off and play golf. You're still married. Christ didn't send me to baptize. If you had to be baptized to be saved, 
you know what, Matt, there's no way he'd say that. You can't have to have it to be saved or he couldn't say that. Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness, because I want to focus on the cross. But go back. He says, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 11. One of the, you know, the problem with, with ministering in Corinth is was it was a very immoral culture that was very antithetical to, to, to the message of Christ. But also the people who end up becoming part of the church are kind of squirrely. They're kind of flaky. You know what? Uh, the longer I teach at the college level, the more I'm convinced one of the keys to success in life is don't force your teachers or your boss or your friends to come to the conclusion you're flaky. Just try to avoid that, you know. But this is a church full of flaky people. Uh, and he says in 1 Corinthians 1.11, Paul says, as he writes this letter to the Corinthians during the third missionary journey, uh, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels, there are cliques among you. You're not getting along in the church. Now, I mean this, that some of you are saying, I'm of Paul. I like Paul. I don't like the other people who teach the word here. Or others are saying, I like Paulus. He's much more eloquent than Paul. Or I'm of Cephas. Or I'm just of Jesus. And I'm the, I just love Jesus so much I can't like any of the rest of you. And people actually do that in Christian circles. I'm so committed to Jesus, I hate all the other Christians who aren't as spiritual as I am. Which is a strange way to show Christ-like love. If you read the Gospels, but that's a different issue. Uh, he says, watch this. Has Christ been divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you. Was he? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Why, why are you using me as the basis of thinking you're better because you like me more than you like Apollos or something? Now look what he says. I thank God I baptized very few of you. The only people I baptized really, when I think about it, were Crispus. Who's Crispus? He's the leader of the synagogue. Who becomes a believer at the very get-go, right? We just read about Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, right? I, I did baptize him, and I baptized Gaius. Paul likes to use... Uh, the more formal a name, and Luke likes to use nicknames, Titius Justice, that's that guy. So you can't brag about really being baptized in my name. Now come and think of it, I did baptize a couple other people. But other than that, I only baptized a couple people because God didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach Jesus the Christ so you could believe and be saved. So some pretty cool stuff there. Go back to Acts 18. Love that kind of stuff. Uh, here's principle. Rather than allowing the faithless to freak us out, and it gets pretty bad when they've got headlines in the New York Daily News. God's not going to help this because somebody asked after the San Bernardino, I think it was during the, San, during the San Bernardino massacre, somebody texted, please pray for us. And somebody was talking about that later. And the newspaper took offense that people were praying because obviously that can't do anything. And I thought, good night. You know, uh, we're supposed to bend over backwards to placate one major world religion, but you can spit in our face and take our right to pray even when the, when the victims are asking us to pray and objecting to that. What have we come to? So it's really discouraging, you know, when you look out at the fruited plain. But rather than allowing the faithless to freak us out, and I, I almost got freaked out several times this week by the faithless, just so you'll know. We should actively appreciate those who truly believe and walk with Him, which is one reason we need local church. Because the first significant thing we need to do on the first day of the week, when God gives us a whole new week to live out, get together with people of like mind and faith so we can encourage one another and stimulate one another to better gossip and slander. No, I mean to uh, love and good works. I think that's what we're supposed to do. Right? That would be good. Yeah. Okay. Verses 9 through 11. We've seen phase 1, seen phase 2. 
Now we're going to see the importance of the ministry of encouragement. Even somebody like Paul needs encouragement. And he needs some really high-powered encouragement here. But we're going to see that uh, Paul gets special, unique, apostolic kind of divine encouragement to hang in there, keep on doing the same old thing rather than giving it up or watering it down. Uh, you know, and, and watch this. You know, you're thinking, why would Paul be discouraged here? Because he's actually seeing some good stuff. Now, obviously, the synagogue rejected him, but that happens everywhere. So that's not unusual, right? Uh, and he's got, golly, this guy next door in this huge house is a believer who wants to use it as the basis of the church. He's got the leader of the synagogue. He's got several other folks. Now, they're all kind of flaky, but, I mean, he's seeing results. It's not like he's seeing zero. You talk to some missionaries who were there for 15 years, nothing happened, you know. And you go, wow, that's crazy. How'd you hang in there? But even when you're seeing stuff happen around you, uh, you know, Riley, I think, is a guy who's got a lot more influence on people than you may realize. Because I follow you around every other Tuesday and Wednesday, all day long. I hide behind bushes and I watch you closely. And you are a little flaky sometimes. But I can tell you, uh, I've, I've talked to people who didn't know I knew you about you and in a good way. And since I just did a column on slandering, what was it, uh, gossip and flattery in the paper Friday? i got to stop gossiping and flattering so much. I know I was very convicted when I read that column. Sometimes you read a column and you read it later and you go, wow, scary. But I, you've got a lot of impact on people. So, you know, Riley may be thinking, well, golly, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing at church and at school. And I love the Lord. And I like to worship God. and I, I'm a great athlete and stuff. But does it really matter? Does anybody really notice or benefit from my Christian witness in my life? You know, I mean, just over time, the pressures and the people that whine and don't like you, you kind of get on your nerves, you know. And this is true even for Paul here. So look what happens here. You get some really supernatural reinforced encouragement. I think Paul's just about to give it up and move down down the next uh, road, down the road to the next city. But the Lord comes to, and this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to see this a couple more times in the book of Acts for Paul. And the Lord said to Paul in the night in a vision, which means he's not a, asleep. A vision is a dreams when you're asleep. A vision is when you're awake. So in the middle of the night, he's not sleeping, probably praying or maybe stressed out. What, do I, what am I going to tell him now? You know, what, what's the next thing I'm going to do now? Uh, do not be afraid any longer, uh, but go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you. Now, you know, the person wouldn't ride the plane, you know, because lo, I am with you always. But if you get in the plane, you're going to be high, you know. But he'll be with you even if you're in a plane. Uh, lo, I am with you. I am with you. And no man will attack you to harm you. He's going to be attacked but not harmed in Corinth. For I have many people in this city, uh, hopefully who don't have microphones attached to them, right? I have many people in this city. You're not done yet, boy. I want you to stay here and look at saying what happens. And so... He just settles in, and he stays 18 months in Corinth. And, you know, if it was up to his preferences, it's just a tough place to minister. There's a lot of immorality. There's all kinds of bizarro stuff happening all over the place that he doesn't like. He probably has to battle uh, some of that uh, uh, temptation, whatever his weaknesses are in those areas, too. Uh, and you've got all these flaky believers that tend to do all kinds of crazy stuff. Read First and Second Corinthians, and these people just, they'll wear you out. I mean, they're... They're almost as bad as the church I served in Shreveport for six years. I mean, they're that bad, okay? I hope nobody there is a, gets that, but I said it in love, and I didn't really mean it exactly, but just, uh, you know, I was not in control of myself. Yeah, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking so he stays 18 months. Corinth was a hard place to, to live in because of the perversity of the culture 
And because the believers in, in the church were, were hard to please. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 11. And we're almost to the happy ending of this sermon, so, or message, what do you want to call it? Hey, if I go too long, we can blame Dale's watch, right? It's still ticking, Dale. I didn't, I didn't break it. I thought I was going to have to buy your watch for Christmas after I dropped it there, man. Sorry. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Look what Paul says here about the joys. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 and following. Look what Paul says about the joys of being publicly identified with Christ in a culture that doesn't like Christ. Kind of like our culture nowadays. But he faced so much worse than we're having to face right now. He says, Five times I've received from the Jews 39 lashes, and 40 can kill you. Three times I was beaten with rods. We know about once in Philippi specifically. Once I was stoned. That happened in Lystra, Acts 14. Three times I was shipwrecked. We're going to learn about one in chapter 27 of Acts. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. Sounds like Bear Grylls, you know. Man versus wild. I've been on frequent journeys. I mean, just going to the airports will wear you out. And you just, right, right. I mean, you've got to find that passport and all your paperwork. Let's let's use your phone. Let's use your phone. In dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. They, they don't read that passage to you the first day at Dallas Seminary, by the way. They don't want you to find out about that till later. But watch this. He has all these physical things, which are obviously much more than we have to face at this point. It could change. But watch this. Pastors appreciate this. Apart from such external, you know, little things like that, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for the churches. And <laughs> you're going, yeah. You're just waiting for the next text about somebody's brain surgery or they're mad at you or mad at somebody and it's all over, you know. It happens, you know. Crazy. So Paul is ministering and he's just discouraged and he just needed encouragement and nobody in Corinth was really qualified to give it very much. So he got it in a very unique, supernatural way. But the principle, I think, is uh, if we're going to live a consistent Christian life, make the routine uh, look routine, uh, which it really is routine, we're going to have to lean on the Lord for our encouragement. Uh, if our lives are going to really count in the long haul, because there's so many bad things and difficulties and things you can't explain that happen to you. Uh, look at another passage in 2 Corinthians. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Yeah, this, this is pretty neat. You feel like you're just sitting down with Paul and he's just letting his hair down. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure of our eternal life in earthen vessels, physical vessels that are going to break down and die at some point unless the rapture happens. Such that the surpassing greatness of the power will be shown to be of God and not from ourselves. We're afflicted in every way. Christians aren't bulletproof. We're not immune from anything that can happen to the world. I mean, we get all the same uh, pressures and problems and diseases and everything else that unbelievers get. Uh, in parts of the world can see the difference. Uh, we are uh, afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not totally despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, 
always carrying about in the body the dying of Christ, such that the life of Christ may also be manifest in our body. Now go down to verse um, 16. I know we're jumping over some stuff. Therefore, even though we go through the same kind of things anybody in the world goes through, and in some cases worse, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man, our physical body, is decaying and aging, yet our inner man is being renewed. Momentary light affliction. And in light affliction, I guess nothing bad ever happened to Paul. He's listed all these bad things, much worse than any of us have dealt with. Uh, for momentary light affliction, he's got a human viewpoint perspective when he says that. It's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension uh, or comparison. Uh, but this is only going to happen while we keep our eyes on him, the crucified, risen Savior, while we look not just at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The things that are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So, um, while Paul receives a very special form of encouragement, when he gets a, a vision of the risen Christ telling him, hang in there and you're going to be okay and, and stay there for the next 18 months, most of the time, most Christians you know desperately need a word of encouragement. Okay? Most Christians you know, as Pam will tell you, are either in a crisis, just coming out of one, or just about to go into one, and you may not know about it. You, as a rule, friend, be nicer to people than they deserve because they might be dealing with stuff you don't know about. Now, God knows about it, but one reason he brings us into each other's lives is so that we can find stuff to encourage. I emphasized that yesterday at the men's breakfast. And, you know, men have a hard time encouraging one another without apology because we know it sounds like we're flattering or buttering people up. But if you do it with a pure heart, you ought to do it consistently because we need it. Let me define encouragement as a lifestyle of looking for lives to look up. But you're going to do it sincerely, appropriately, right time and place, and without fake flattery. And I know that's uh, not necessarily to put fake flattery, but I wanted to emphasize flattery. When you're just making stuff up you don't really believe, that doesn't count. Here's our problem. It takes zero effort to see stuff we don't like or complain about people or things we don't appreciate. And so all of us get a lot of that kind of input all the time because it's so easy for people to throw that at us, and we throw that out a lot, I'm sure, to people as well. Much more difficult to look for stuff to like in order to encourage the person. And I think a lot of times we see stuff we really admire, appreciate people, and we may even pray about it, but we don't take the extra step or forget to, or we never get around to it, of telling that other person, you know, what they mean to us or how that example really helped us. And this is one of the, the things I've seen as a pastor that does funerals is sometimes you get the family talking and people will go, man, you know, you list all these amazing things about this person and and, and it's obvious they kind of feel like, I wish I had told him that. I wish I would told her that, you know. And I say, you know what, I've got a feeling that God gives them some closed circuit in the st- meetings like this so they can kind of see how you feel about them. But, yeah, it would have been better. So here's the thing. Uh, all of us need encouragement. If Paul needs encouragement, Blanche, supernatural encouragement to hang in there in Corinth, I bet you that Mimi probably needs a word of encouragement occasionally, Right? Uh, and there's a lot to like about Mimi. I, I really, I've known Mimi from my, probably the first time I visited this church 28 years ago. And you always made a, and that was when we didn't have computers back then. I had to give you handwritten handouts where you were working to type up for me on a real typewriter. Remember that? 
So we got to be really good friends because she, uh, Mimi and Dale are the only people in the church who can read my handwriting. So, which was a good thing. But here's the thing. Routine faithfulness isn't routine. It is not easy. It is not automatic. But all of us, in order to be routinely faithful, need to be encouraged. Now here's the thing. As somebody who's not very consistent and they just show up and do something and do it really good, they get a lot of encouragement because you just can't believe, you know, brother so-and-so who only comes on Eastern Christmas shows up and helps Krista run Super Summer. And so that just shows up. So that kind of person gets a lot of encouragement. But the poor dumb slobs, you know, like Pam or Ron, that show up for everything, always plug into everything, always trying to make everything work, because they just always do it right, you just kind of take them for granted. And I think that's wrong. And my point here is, if the Apostle Paul, who's a fairly consistent Christian, would you say, Blanche, you're a theologian, he's a pretty good Christian, right? If he needed supernatural encouragement, all of us, including the ones that seem to be doing all the right stuff, oh, they don't need it, they're so much more spiritual than everybody else, they may need it just as much or more than the guy that shows up randomly and actually helps with Super Summer for two weeks. You know, I mean, we've never seen him for two years, so we get excited about that. And I do too. That's great. I'd love to see that. But uh, put your headgear on and look around for people to encourage and make it uh, a commitment that you're going to make routine faithfulness in your life look routine, even though it never is. Okay, Father, help us to realize how important it is for us to keep doing the same old things, loving you, loving our spouse, loving our family, going to work, making our tents or our saddles or whatever we do in our, our jobs, uh, plugging into our church, loving our family, encouraging our family and our church family. Uh, help us to make, by your power, routine faithfulness, a routine in our life, a commitment in our life. And help us as a body to realize a big part of the uh, reinforcing power that allows those things to happen is the ministry of encouragement, not just from James and Brad, because when we do it, we're kind of the pastor. We're supposed to try to encourage people. That's part of our job description. You know, we check that off. And we don't think like that, but that's kind of the way it comes off sometimes. But if, you know, Steve Skinner sees something in Homer, he can affirm and, and sincerely uh, affirm it without any flattery or pretense. Boom, man, what an encouragement that is. If Ron Miller can see something uh, in uh, Matt Sanford or in uh, Debbie McCoy, that's solid and consistent is a blessing. What a, what a tonic, what a blessing that can be. So help us to have our radar on top of our headgear looking for things to like in others, not just in church, in our extended family, especially at Christmas time where we're probably going to interact with Uncle Joe and our second cousin from Cleveland that we don't see but once every other Christmas. Help us to see things to like about them and to affirm in them. And then let us be encouraged to make routine faithfulness, really routine because we're committed to it. Uh, we pray these things that Christ would be glorified in us individually and as a church. In his name, amen.